Well, good morning. Great to see you, New City Church. For those of you who are on one of our campuses today, or for those of you watching online, we're really grateful to have you here in worship. I want to just start with a little bit of family news for New City before we jump into the message today. We had a date night the Friday before last, and it was sold out. Uh, we had a full house of folks who were together to uh, grow and develop and pour into their marriages. And just want to thank all of you for coming and let you know that we're going to do that again, New City Date Night. So if you weren't able to, to be there, I want to encourage you, the, the next one coming up, to sign up for and to be there. We had a, a great time together pouring into our marriages here at New City. And the other thing I wanted to mention is the New City app. We've talked about this before, but our New City app is, is one of the, the major ways that we communicate here on a regular basis. So if you haven't downloaded uh, the New City Church app, I want to encourage you to do so. You can do that wherever you get your apps on Android or iPhone devices. And it's a, again, it's a great way for you to keep up with all that's happening here. We have weekly announcements that are updated every single week and published there that you can keep up with if you can't come to church on a given week. Not that any of you would ever miss church on a weekend, but if you ever had to miss church for some reason, you can keep up with all the things that are happening here. And there's a lot happening here. You can send it to a friend, those announcements, or uh, if they couldn't be here, they're sick or whatever, you can send it to them and let them know what's happening so they can keep up with the life of our church. So I want you to encourage you to download the app, or if you have the app, I know many of you do, to be opening it and looking at it on a weekly basis. Another thing, again, as we come to the message today, you can find sermon notes there and the outlines. So all of that is published on the app. So are, how many of you are note takers and note blank filler enters? Blank filler enters, is that the way you say it? If you'd like to fill in a blank, we have blanks there and um, outlines that you can follow along. You can email them to yourself for safekeeping. You can email them to someone who wasn't here to follow along with the sermon. And then, and then finally, just for today, again, lots of features there, but something I want to footstomp today on the app is uh, sermon questions. So you can go further with the passages that we're studying on the weekends together and the sermons and the series that we do. We create a study guide of sermon questions for every single sermon. So cross-referencing other passage and passages in the scripture, um, questions that you can ask of yourself uh, around the dinner table as a family or in your new city circle or, or group. You can go further with what's happening on the weekend and take that uh, into your circle during the week. And we have groups that meet every single day of the week, almost every hour, um, every single day across to the city. Um, so we'd love for you to take what we're doing on the weekends and the sermons and go further. So get the New City app, okay? We're starting a brand new sermon series today entitled The Miraculous Seven. The Miraculous Seven. And we're going to be looking at the miracles that Jesus performed in the Gospel of John. Jesus gives seven major signs, seven major miracles in the Gospel of John. Of course, th these weren't the only miracles and wonders that he performed. John finishes his Gospel, if you want to skip ahead to chapter 21, that's the very final chapter in the Gospel of John. And in the very final verse, verse 25, John says, if all of the miracles that Jesus performed were recorded, the entire world couldn't contain the books that would be recorded and the volume of things that would be recorded in there if everything that Jesus did was, was written down. Isn't that amazing? What an amazing statement. But, but John wrote these words down through the power of the Holy Spirit for a specific purpose. And we'll get to that in just a moment because he records the reasons for the miracles and why they were recorded in the way that they were in his gospel. But you need to know as we start this series, The Miraculous Seven, looking at these seven major signs throughout the gospel of John, that John, the evangelist who wrote this, was an eyewitness to these miracles. 
Now, I know we, we have several attorneys in our new city family, and they know that some of the most powerful evidence or proof is that of an eyewitness, an eyewitness account, a credible witness who saw what happened. There were all kinds of eyewitnesses that saw the words and the wonders of Jesus. They heard those words. They, they saw it with their own eyes, and they recorded it down for us that we could see, that we could understand who Jesus is and, and what he did. Now, here's the thing. Not only were they eyewitnesses, and John himself an eyewitness, but he was a credible eyewitness. And you say, well, Chris, Chris, how do you know he was a credible eyewitness? Well, the disciples themselves, we know from historical evidence that every one of the disciples except for one, John, who wrote the Gospel of John, were martyred for their faith. They were killed for what they believed and what they wrote down, what they recounted of who Jesus is and, and what he did. And John was just exiled on an island and beaten half to death. And none of them ever recanted their stories about who Jesus was. Now, here's the thing, guys. Okay, we're, we're, all of us are different places on our belief in Jesus. Some of you have been following Jesus for years and years. And this series will serve as a reminder for you of who Jesus is and, and hopefully to encourage you in the faith that you have in Jesus. For some of you, you're just starting a relationship with Jesus and you've never read through the Gospel of John or these amazing signs that are recorded. And for some of you, you're still exploring what it means to have a relationship with God. Here's the thing. People die for what they believe to be the truth. Some people, some people will die for what they believe to be true. Even if it's a lie, and we know it's a lie, if they believe it's true, they might even die for that. And unfortunately, we see that happen. People dying for what they believe to be true. But watch this. No one dies for what they know to be a lie. People will die for what they know, uh, for what they believe to be true. No one dies for what they know to be a lie. And none of the disciples, including John, the author of our text today, none of them go back and say, we just made it up. You know, we just were bored one night at a party and we said, you know, what if we created this whole narrative and story and spread it around? At the threat of death, they're saying Jesus is alive and he is who he said he was. So, so our faith in Jesus, everyone watch this, our faith in Jesus as Christ's followers fills us with hope. But our faith, our belief in Jesus isn't based only on hope or blind faith. Our faith in Jesus is based on evidence, on real life evidence and proof of people who were there and recorded it for us that we might believe in Christ. Listen to the purpose statement, if you will, that John the evangelist gives for his gospel. He records it in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, and I brought it on a slide for you to see. John wrote these words. He says, after, now this is after the final sign, by the way, which we'll get to on Easter weekend, the resurrection itself. The seventh and final sign, the resurrection. After the resurrection in John chapter 20, John records the reasons why he's written down these signs for us to know about and to see. He says, now Jesus did many other signs. He did more than just these seven in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Now listen to this, verse 31, John 20, because this is the bottom line passage, the foundation for our entire study together over the next seven weeks. But these, these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life 
in his name. You don't need to raise your hand. How many of you want life? John says, if you want life, a life that never runs out, that never runs dry, if you want real life, a life overflowing, it comes by believing in the name of Jesus. And our belief doesn't come from just a blind faith or hope. The belief, it comes from real life evidence and eyewitness testimony of who Jesus was and what he did. That is the heartbeat of Christianity. That we would believe in Jesus for who he is, the son of God, the Christ. The word Christ means the anointed one. The anointed one who was the very son of God who came to live a perfect life, to die in our place and was resurrected, defeating uh, death forever for all of us. That we might have life in his name by believing in who he is. That's the point and the heart of the Christian faith. That's the heart of this church. That's the heart of this sermon series. So I want you to look to your neighbor and say, I'm going to be here for this. Oh, that, that was, I, I don't know. Is anybody, really? Wow. Look to your neighbor and say, I'm not going to miss this. All right, that's better. Because God doesn't want us to miss it. This was recorded for you and for me. This was recorded for us, these words of life, so that we would believe in Jesus and have life in his name. So with that, let's go to a little town called Cana. It's about eight and a half miles north of Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. And it's the setting for the very first sign, the very first miracle. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word that never, ever, ever returns void. Thank you that in your word, we have the words of life. So as we study the gospel of John together over the next seven weeks, would you make these words that were written through the power of your Holy Spirit, would you make them come to life in our own hearts? Would you speak to each one of us and would you open our ears and our hearts and our minds to hear from you and what you want to say to us? We'll give you all the praise and the glory for it. And all God's people said together, Amen, amen. The, hey, the morning that Jen and I were married, June 23rd, 2001, coming up on 19 years, the morning that we were married, we almost, th we thought we almost, you know, weren't going to get married that day. We thought that we might have to call the wedding off, and it's not for the reasons that you're thinking that Jen was backing out on me. It was, it was that ironically, ironically, the morning that we were married, our minister wasn't there. He hadn't shown up. He was flying in and he got stuck in Denver and he couldn't get in. So he missed the rehearsal and the hours were ticking away to our wedding and he still wasn't there. And so we had a phone call with each other. We're like, what, what, we're gonna, we might have to cancel our wedding. This is going to be really embarrassing. We've invited all these people and, and what are we going to do? And, and so my solution to it, which Jen still, you know, gives me a hard time about was, well, I've got my grooms in here and we have, we have two tea times and I don't, I don't really know what's going to happen, but there's not a whole lot I can do. So we're going to go play golf and, and I'll, I'll see you at the church in, in, a, in, a, in a little bit. And it all worked out. It all worked out. He got there and we got married. The, the, the setting of the very first miracle is a wedding and a potentially embarrassing moment at a wedding. Jesus is there, his disciples are there, Jesus' mother Mary is there, and something is happening that, that might cause a, a huge disruption and embarrassment to all the families involved. So let's go there now. John chapter 2, 
If you have your scriptures, open up to John chapter 2. The passage is preloaded on the app, so you can find it there as well. If you need a Bible, just to say up front across all of our campuses, if you need a Bible, there's one in front of you or one out in the four years when you leave today, please take that Bible as our gift to you. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. This is the text of the very first sign, the very first miracle that Jesus performed. I'm going to read it to you, the word of God to you today. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Verse 4, John 2. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they, so they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, and he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, verse 10, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Verse 11, final verse today. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. May God bless the reading of his word to you. A couple of observations on this very first sign, this very first miracle. And if you're, you're taking some notes, maybe, maybe jot a few notes down here from this very first sign that Jesus gives to us, that John records for the purpose of our belief in Jesus. The first is that John is an eyewitness, of course, and he gives some specific details, starting with the idea that this is the third day, not necessarily the third day of the week, but it's the third day since the beginning of his gospel. If you go back in John chapter 1, there's an interaction with, with Jesus and John the Baptist, there's the calling of his disciples, and then specifically in John chapter 1, he calls a man named Nathaniel, and you may remember this narrative. Uh, Jesus says, I saw you sitting underneath a fig tree, Nathaniel. And Nathaniel says, surely you are the son of God, Jesus. And Jesus says, you believed because I said I saw you sitting under a fig tree? You're going to see a lot greater things than just this, Nathaniel. And so John is weaving in in time this narrative, this very first sign, back to things that Jesus has already done in these very first few days of his public ministry. So he says it's on the third day. And here's what's interesting as well. If you go back and look at the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, and now you look at the Gospel of John, they begin with the same three words. Do you remember what they are? In the beginning. In the beginning. And John is in some ways tying back his Gospel narrative of Jesus, the, the second Adam. He's tying his Gospel narrative back into the, the creation account itself. So on the third day. He's tying it back in. And he also tells us where this is. There wasn't just a random place or some um, 
you know, hypothetical event that happened. This was an actual wedding feast that happened with real people in a real time in a real place, a place called Cana of Galilee in the region of Galilee. Again, it was about eight miles north of Nazareth. I brought a, a map for you to see and just kind of place this in your mind's eye. A, a, an historical fact and evidence, a real place where a real miracle and sign took place. And it's important that John uh, communicates, it's important to him that he communicates to you the details because what is he saying? I was there. This isn't some vague event that I'm just storytelling. I'm giving you an account of details that I would give to someone if I was trying to prove an evidence that I was there and that this actually took place. What's the presenting problem in the miracle? What's the issue here? The presenting issue. We find it in verse 3. Mary says it very plainly to Jesus, her son. They have no wine. They have no wine. In other words, the party's over. The party's over. And when we, we read that now, even together today, as modern readers, we, you know, we, we, we sort of go, well, what, what's the problem? I mean, yeah, it's an issue. It's embarrassing. But just end the party and send everybody home. But for a first century Jewish reader reading this, they would have understood how big of a deal this was. Running out of wine at a wedding feast was a major faux pas. In fact, just to give some historical context for this very first sign, water to wine, running out of wine as they did would be something that the groom's family and the groom himself could be indicted for. So this is kind of interesting. Back in the first century of, of Judaism, it wasn't the bride that was responsible for the reception or the, the wedding feast, which, by the way, could go on for upwards of seven days. It wasn't the bride that was responsible. It was the groom that was responsible. And the groom had to give a party that was fitting to the relationship that he had with his bride. And so wine being something that symbolized in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Testament, joy, to run out of wine would have, been, would have been something that would have communicated to the bride's family, this isn't that big of a deal because I really didn't take the time to plan. And if I didn't take the time to plan or be thoughtful about, about it, what does that mean? It really didn't matter to me. And if it really doesn't matter to me, then what does that say about the relationship? See where I'm going here? So you could actually, for real, you could file a lawsuit if you were the bride's family, you could file a lawsuit against the groom if the, if the party didn't meet the standard. So to run out of wine in the middle of the feast was a big deal. Not only to mention, it would have been, it would have been hugely embarrassing to the groom and to his family. Now we're left to inference that, that Jesus' family and Mary, that, that, that they were friends with the groom's family. And they were, they were maybe even helping put this reception, this, this wedding feast on. And so Mary has details before the, the whole party knows that they're out of wine. Mary comes and says, they've run out of wine. In other words, we, we, we got a problem here. But, but there's more. There's more. Because symbolically what was happening was that uh, the nation of Israel the, the Jews themselves were running out of joy. There was a spiritual dryness and barrenness. They had forgotten their first love. And so what was happening symbolically is that the people of Israel, the Jews that were gathered there, their hearts were not filled with the same joy for the one true God as they, they once had. The wine was running out. Enter Jesus, the fulfillment of their prayers, their longing for Messiah. 
And so Mary turns in this moment to Jesus, the the Son of God, the Messiah, the one who would restore and fulfill Israel with its first love, the evidence of God among them. Mary turns to Jesus and says they're running out of wine. Mary had learned to turn to Jesus. Mary at this point is a widow. We're left to inference that Joseph, Joseph has died. Somewhere between the age of 12 and the age of 30 now approximately, uh, Joseph is no longer recorded his name uh, of being there at at some of these settings where Mary and and Jesus' other family members are. So we're left to inference that Joseph is is dead. Mary being a widow would look to her family and namely her eldest son who is Jesus. This was a close relationship. They had relied on one another. Jesus had taken over the family business and helped support the family, helped to to raise his other siblings, was a support for Mary. You can see in the miracle, if we read close enough, the intimacy between Jesus and his mother, Mary. She learns to look to him, to rely on him. She says they've run out of wine. And he responds in a really interesting way, doesn't he? Verse 4. A way that can kind of throw us off, again, as modern readers of Is Jesus being rude to his mother? He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And when we read that, we sort of go, ouch. That wouldn't have gone over in my house. I don't know about you, right? Don't, (laughs) hey, students in the room, don't don't try that today. It's It's actually not a great translation of what Jesus is saying. It's a literal translation, but it's actually, it doesn't ca- capture the heart of what Jesus is really saying. A better rendering of this phrasing in the Greek is, is our word ma'am. It, it's, a ref- it's a respectful term that you would use uh, in a loving way or a respectful way to a member of the community or a member of a loving member of your family where you would say, ma'am, excuse me, ma'am, what, what does this have to do with me? Does, does, that, does that help? Jesus is not being disrespectful to his mother, although the response does create some relational distance between them. It is, a, it is a more formal response that Jesus gives. He says, ma'am, what, what, what does this have to do with me? My hour hasn't come. What does that mean, my hour hasn't come? Jesus is referencing the hour of salvation, the hour of atonement. The actual moment of him on the cross shedding his blood for the sins of the world. He says, my hour has not yet come. In John's gospel, he's placing, as we study it together, and I hope you'll read it on your own over the next month and a half as we study together. In John's gospel, there's much more emphasis on private miracles, private interactions between individuals. And Jesus maintaining the integrity of his identity, sometimes even hiding his identity for the moment that he wants to reveal to Israel who he, who he really is. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those gospels emphasize much more the public ministry and miracles of Jesus. And without going too far into it, some of you may know that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the synoptic gospels. Synoptic meaning with one eye, sin, S-Y-N, one optic scene, with one eye seeing, synoptics. They see through the same lens. John is a standalone. Even though they tie together, John is seen from a different lens and perspective. And specifically when it comes to the miracles and the signs, John is offering an individualistic view of the miracles. They're very private. 
And this one is as well. Mary knows, but the other, the party doesn't know. When we get further into the, to the, to the sign here, the miracle in just a moment, we'll see that some people knew before other people knew. It's very much a private moment. I love this phrase in verse five. Look at it with me. John chapter two, verse five. Jesus and Mary have their interaction. Jesus gives a very gentle and respectful rebuke of his mother. Ma'am, what does this have to do with me? My hour hasn't come yet. It's not my moment. And Mary simply says to the servants who are gathered, again, a private moment, a private conversation. She simply says these words. And these are words for us to take today and to live by. Do whatever he tells you. Let's just stop there for a second. Because maybe, maybe those five words are the reason why you're sitting here today or watching. Whatever you might be facing today in a relationship challenge or something waiting on you this week at work or even something that you brought into the room here today and you're looking for guidance, you're looking for a sign, you're looking for God to speak to you and maybe these are the words you need to carry with you today in your situation, in your life, in this moment, John chapter 2 verse 5, Mary's words to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Whatever it is that Jesus is telling you to do, whatever that next step is in your faith, whatever that next moment, whatever that next action or word is that you would be faithful to do it. For many of us, you know, I'll speak for myself, I I tend to think way ahead and what's going to happen down the road. And, 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 and oftentimes I forget that, that over here in the future begins with right here. Whatever is going to happen tomorrow begins with my faith and my obedience today. And so let's just make it real simple to get today. Do whatever the next thing is that Jesus is telling you to do. Yeah, Chris, but you know, my, my marriage is a mess. The business is upside down. I, I know. But it begins by you doing whatever he tells you to do. Whatever the next godly step is for you, that's the step that he's calling you to take today. I know there's 20 more steps ahead, but it begins with the first step towards Jesus and obedience to him. Mary knows who, don't forget this, in the context, Mary knows who Jesus is. The disciples are still trying to figure it out. And they're busy doing that throughout all of his ministry. Even at the end, they're still trying to figure out who, who is this guy? Mary knows. And how does Mary know? Mary, did you know? Yes, Mary knows. <laughs> yes, she knows. And, and, and great song, but terrible theology. Why do we know that, that, that Mary knows and understands? Someone's listening to it. That's great, right? <laughs> it happens to me all the time. Happens to me all the time. How does Mary, how does Mary know? Because the angel told her, God told her, you're going to give birth to my son. He, he's, he's here to, uh, to, to bring forgiveness and grace to all the world, to be my promised Messiah, the very Christ himself. She knew. And what does the Bible tell us at the end of the Advent um, narrative? That Mary, this is a beautiful passage, that Mary treasured all these things up in her heart. You ever, you ever carry a secret? You have a special insight or understanding into something that the Lord's given to you and you carry that in your heart. You're faithful to steward that insight. Think about that. 
For 30 years, Mary has carried this knowledge and understanding. And in the sovereignty of God, in this moment, this is the moment where she turns to Jesus, not just as her son, but as the son of God, and ask him to intervene. You know, you're probably familiar with the phrase, and you've probably used it in your own household. Mama, mama knows. Mama knows, and she does. Mama always knows. There's so many times in our house we have three that Jen will say, something's, something's off with this one. Something's not right about this one. And for me, most times, they're fine. They're fine. Everything's fine. But guess who's always right about that? Mama knows. Mary knows. She knows who Jesus is. She understands the moment. And she demonstrates to us, even in our own lives and the things that we're facing today, what we're meant to do with our struggles, our confusions, our disappointments with God. We place them into his hand and we, and we say, do, do whatever you want to do. Do whatever you want to do. She looks to Jesus in this moment and says, it's up to you. It's in, I'm placing my concern. I've brought my concern to you. I'm placing it in your hands and I'm trusting that you're going to do whatever it is that you're supposed to do. She displays, doesn't she? Before we just move on, Mary displays her trademark faith in this moment. Looking to her son, Jesus, who is also her savior, the son of God, the savior of the world and saying, Whatever it is that you choose to do, I'm trusting you. What a beautiful prayer for us. Maybe circle those five words in your Bible, underline them on your phone if you're following along and, and take those words with you this week. Finally, just observations. The servants who had drawn the water, they knew. Look at verses six through 10, John chapter two. The servants who were a part of that, again, private conversation between Mary and her son Jesus, they're overhearing this. And she says to them, do whatever he tells you to. And they have a special insight and understanding into this very first sign, this miracle of water to wine. It, I, I think it's a, an incredible teaching and insight that the servants who were participating in the very work, in the very sign, who, who, as Jesus instructs them here in our passage, to take six stone water jars and to fill them to the brim, that, that it was in their obedience that they understood what Jesus had done. Stick with me here. It was by listening to what Jesus, by fulfilling what, what Mary said, do whatever he tells you to in verse 5, that leads to verse 9, John chapter 2, that the servants understood and knew what had happened. Before anyone else knew what had happened, the servants did. The ones who had actually had their hands used to participate in the, in the miracle, who took the jars and filled them with water to the brim, who, who drew the, the water out of, of those same jars and saw it turn to wine. They had a special insight into what Jesus had done, this wonder, this miracle. And I think this is a wonderful teaching for us, that when we choose to say yes to Jesus, when we choose to say yes to participating in his great work, when we choose to say yes to his ministry through our hands, through our feet, through our words, through our eyes, that we get a special insight into the work that Jesus is doing. The servants understood, the servants knew. And we gain special understanding and insight, spiritual wisdom and insight when we choose to participate in the work of God in this world. 
There's something so much more than, that, than, that is happening here than just a, a wedding supply deal. It wasn't just that, that Jesus was su- su- supplying you know, the, the wedding with wine. He was doing that and sparing the groom and his family embarrassment. Of course he was doing that. But there's something so much deeper that's happening here that's, that's, that's uh, symbolic in the words and the miracle. The stone jars were, were what? Look at verse 6. What were the stone jars used for? The stone water jars. They were used as a Jewish rite of purification. In other words, they would take those water jars and in order to participate in worship, like we are today collectively but also individually, and in order to be able to participate in society and culture in a public way, you had to purify yourself. You had to cleanse yourself. This would happen ritually. You would have to do it over and over and over again to keep the outside of your body clean and pure to participate in worship and participate in life and culture. Now watch this. The very first miracle, the very first sign that Jesus gives for who he is to all the world is turning that water into wine. In other words, what it's symbolic of is you're not going to need the water to wash your outsides anymore. And the wine that was created is symbolic of the very blood of Jesus, the new wine. And instead of purifying the outside of your body, it's going to purify the inside of your heart. And only the blood of Jesus can do this. There's not enough scrubbing and washing that you can do to purify and cleanse yourself. It's only by the shedding of blood, the perfect lamb of God, the blood of Christ shed for you, that we can have forgiveness and remission of our sins, that we can be clean. Maybe the most powerful passage when it comes to salvation in all the New Testament, at least according to Martin Luther, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. He, listen to this, he, Jesus, who knew no sin, who was pure, became sin, took on your sin, my sin, past, present, and future, so that we collectively might become the righteousness of God. That is the gospel in one verse. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Again, you've heard me say this before. It's worth saying again. Christianity is not a behavior modification program. Christianity is not six steps to a better you. Christianity is not you becoming more self-actualized. Christianity is I was once lost and now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Jesus didn't come to make you better. He came to make you new. And it's only through the shedding of his blood that that can happen. And so the very first miracle that Jesus performs is not only to spare a groom embarrassment, it's to demonstrate to the bride of Christ the links that the groom will go to to be together. And it's symbolic of the wedding feast that we're being invited to as his bride to participate with him forever. Something amazing was happening here. John the Baptist saw it. Flip back one chapter. John chapter 1 verse 29. He sees Jesus walking towards him and what does he say? Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He didn't say, behold a great teacher that's going to give us some moral understanding and help us to be better people. 
Behold a guy that will do some signs and wonders that are really cool and that we'll talk about for a really long time. No, he's the Lamb of God. He's the promised one. He's the only one who is worthy to take upon the sins of all the world because he is without sin. And through our simple trust and belief in him, we can have life. And then finally, look at the volume of the wine Again, the wine is symbolic of the life, the forgiveness, the love, the mercy that Jesus wants to lavish upon us and give to us. Six jars containing upwards of 30 gallons each. Do the math. 180 gallons of good wine. If you bottled that today, it would be some 900 bottles of wine. That's a party. That's a party. Why so much wine? Because his love never runs out on you. His love and his mercy never runs out. His grace is inexhaustible. You cannot outsend the love of God. You cannot outsend the grace of God. And so this wine that's turned from the water symbolizes God's love, his, his blood that was shed for you, his grace, his mercy. And it pours out and it keeps coming and it keeps flowing and it keeps flowing and it never runs out. And so for some of you here today, you're walking in here with a heavy heart, a heavy spirit. For some of you watching today, you just, you feel loaded down and you feel unworthy. And allow this sign, this miracle to be your hope today that God's love never runs out on you. There's nothing that you could do to out the grace and the love of God. And this is what Jesus is busy trying to display in this miracle. 900 bottles of wine. It's over the top. It's inexhaustible. And so is God's grace and mercy. John 2.11, the very final verse, and it'll be our final verse today. John simply says this about this very first of the miraculous signs. He says, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him signs do something when you leave here today you're going to follow traffic signs they point you in a direction they're pointing you to something and these signs do the same thing they're pointing you straight to the heart of Jesus straight to the person of Jesus and they remind us of the whole purpose of all the signs the entire purpose of the gospel of John the purpose of why we're gathered here today But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, you would have life in his name. To him alone be the glory today. Let's pray together. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we give you thanks for your presence today. And we thank you specifically today for your word that never returns void and that points us straight to Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the reminder today of your love for us, your mercy that never runs out. And we pray today that by looking at these signs, these miracles, by studying them together, we would once again believe you. We would believe you, Jesus. And we'd have life in your name. 
So give us the wisdom today to know what you're speaking to us through your word. And give us the faith to leave this place and obey. In your name, amen.